ask you to take your Bibles at this time and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And I'll invite you to stand with me as we read verses 9 through 22 today. And I'll just give you a heads up. We're going to attempt to preach all the way down through chapter 9, verse 17. Four chapters. This might be a first. I don't know. Certainly could be for me. Verse 9, chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And everything, and of everything of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. So also, with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Father, we ask that you bless the reading of your word and that you would speak into our hearts as you desire, that you would change us, transform us according to your purposes today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, my wife and I had uh, an encounter with a man named Joseph that had little use for Christian beliefs. He said he'd been raised in a Catholic school system for 12 years and that it had equipped him to argue effectively against religion. He professed to be an agnostic, but I perceived that he was pressing hard to be an atheist. This is what he said. After much discussion about some of his questions about the Christian faith and about the hereafter and those kinds of things, he said, I hope 
that it's true. I really do hope that there's something on the other side. If only, if only someone could come back from beyond the grave and tell us how it really is. And I said, you mean like Jesus? He said, oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't count. He said, that's just a story that's been included in mythology before Christ, going back to the Babylonians. It's not really true. Just a myth. I said, okay. And I tuned out because Joseph wasn't interested in truth. He simply wanted someone to affirm what he already thinks. He wanted someone to agree with his ideas that God does not exist and that Christianity is a lie. I believe Noah encountered a lot of Josephs in his day. The scripture says that he built an ark and that while he did that, He was a herald of the gospel. He was a herald of righteousness. Rebellion was rampant. It was multiplying at an astronomical rate, as we saw last week. Violence was out of control. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, notice this, every intention of of his thoughts the thoughts of his heart were, was only evil, only evil, only evil continually. Notice those words that are utilized here. Every thought of his heart, only evil continually. That's a pretty heavy indictment. God grieved, it says, over the state of his creation. If this genealogy is complete, and we have every reason to believe that it's complete or very close, it was about a thousand years, just over a millennium from the time that Adam was created until Noah was born. About a thousand fifty-six years is what the experts say. Genesis 5.29 says... That his father, we're talking about Noah, Lamech called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So God had a plan for Noah, but the world was in a mess. Now we look around today and we think the world's in pretty dire straits, do we not? We see violence on every hand. We see things out of control. We see see corruption. And this word corruption is an interesting word. It's, It's an ugly word. But God pronounced judgment on all creation. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to wipe it clean. And he began a countdown of about 120 years until this would happen. Now, this is not the exact time that Noah started building the ark. That comes sometime later. Many people believe that Noah's construction of the ark was probably 70, 75 years of that 120 years. And there were unlimited skeptics in Noah's audience. For seven or eight decades, he preached God's impending justice and God's lavish grace, pleading with his audience to join him. I can imagine that that Noah said the door's open if you want to join, but no one did. 
preaching for seven decades or thereabouts and having seven converts, that's not much to encourage a preacher. But yet that's where Noah was. The flood account may be the most well-known story in human history. It has been replicated in other mythologies and things of that nature. Many deny its validity as the Bible presents it, but virtually everyone has heard it. And today I want to show you here that there is great sin. Dan presented this last week. He said there was more people. The people were growing, multiplying, and yet there were more problems. Sin was growing at an incredible rate. Great sin means a great judgment, a great justice. And we're also going to think about two ways to meet God's judgment. Two ways to meet or face God's justice. And then thirdly, we'll talk about what's beyond God's judgment. What's on the other side of God's judgment? These chapters tell us this. Now, we could spend a lot of time on a lot of things, but I think this is going to give us a sweeping glance at these chapters and help us to stir up some fodder that we can chew on. So let's think about this great sin and a flood of justice. Genesis 6, 11 through 12 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Filled with violence, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Corrupt means ruined. It means spoiled. Excuse me. What God proclaimed as good after he created it, now he looked upon and said, it's ruined, it's spoiled, it's done, it's corrupt. Humanity did what God prescribed and that they multiplied. Remember, this is what he told them, right? Be fruitful and multiply. But they also did what he said, don't do. They ate of the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed God, and they brought sin into the world. And sin multiplied at this exponential rate. Humanity failed at what God required. God's plan for man was what? We said from the very beginning, God's plan for man was that they might be image bearers. We were made in his image to reflect his glory, that people might Look at humanity and see God, be reminded of God, be directed, be pointed to God. Instead, what's happened? Sin and evil and perversity and corruption and violence is what's being displayed. Not the holiness of God, not the glory of God. Noah provides us several contrasts here. He's a righteous man, a blameless man in this perverse generation. Not perfect, not intended to say that he's perfect. He had a sin nature, as we'll discover next week, just like everyone else. But he aspired to obey God, to do as God said, and to honor God. He is the line of Seth, the line that will become Christ, the seed of the woman. His obedience evidences God's assessment of his life. 
Verse 22 of this sixth chapter says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What did God command him to do? Well, he said, I want you to build an ark. (laughs) That must have been an amazing encounter. I think about several of those kinds of encounters in Scripture. We know about Moses when he saw the burning bush and his encounter with God. Abraham had this encounter with God where he uh, gave his covenant to him and he put him to sleep and he cut animals apart and, and his glory passed between them. There have been some incredible things presented in Scripture of man's encounters with God. Noah, by faith, Hebrews eleven seven says, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. An ark, a boat. Noah had no need for a boat. Maybe someone had made a boat at some time. But we haven't been instructed that the conditions of creation had changed at this point. In the early days of creation, the scripture says that God didn't didn't have rain on the earth, that we have every reason to believe that the the world was watered by some sort of condensation like a greenhouse, that water evaporated up and came back down, and maybe it was rain, maybe it wasn't. But he certainly hadn't seen a flood, and he certainly hadn't seen a boat that was 450 feet long. That's quite a yacht, wouldn't you think? It was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It was to have three decks, three decks inside with a roof over the top that seems like was elevated a bit, a cubic, so that light could come in, air, fresh air in and out, and yet keep the rain out. But the most important feature of this ark was what? door. It had a door in the side. Now, sin's a huge problem, right? It's requiring a huge judgment, a huge redemption. The justice that God was about to unleash was beyond comprehension. It's beyond anyone's comprehension. He's about to wipe creation clean, to make an end of all flesh is what he says. That's an ominous verdict. I often wonder why God tolerates sin. I know everyone does. How can a good God, if he says he's good, he's righteous, he's holy, how can he put up and deal or allow with sin to persist the way it does? Habakkuk 1.13 says, you, speaking of the Lord, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Yet we know that God allows sinners and sin to persist. How so? How does he do this? Well, Romans answers the question. Romans 3, 24 through 25 says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because, now listen carefully, in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. He passed over. He looked over. Over, he overlooked the sins 
looking instead to the cross where all the sin would be dealt with by Christ. And the flood is a demonstration of God's wrath that was to come at Calvary. Sin was multiplying at this astronomical rate. It was out of control. It was a great corruption. But what makes it great is that it's against a great and holy God. It's not simply the astronomical number of sins being committed or the heinous nature of those sins, but it's the fact that it's a sin against the holy God. This is what makes it great, and it requires a great justice because it's against holy God. The second thing I want to show you this morning are the two ways to meet God's justice. There are only two ways that you can meet God's justice. Many people are going to meet God's justice alone. Now think about that. They're going to meet God's justice alone. So many, like Joseph that I referred to at the beginning, think they're smarter than God. They think they've figured God out. They think 12 years of Catholic school enables me to have a conversation with God in which I can win the argument. So many think they have it within them to put God on the defensive. Prove it, God. Prove who you are. But God doesn't need to prove anything. It's just the humanity is so arrogant, we have a difficult time getting our minds around this concept. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. You remember the story? There was a rich man living in comfort. He, he had everything that he could want. He was rich. And there was a poor man, a sick man, who lived on the street, lived at the gate of this rich man's house. And this man was covered with sores, and he was eaten up with misery. He would have given anything just to have had access to the crumbs from the rich man's table. Just table scraps. And he would have been grateful. And yet this rich man, the scripture says every day, never acknowledged him, didn't notice him, was indifferent toward him, and just stepped over him as he went on about his merry way. But then they both died. The rich man went to hell. And this poor man, this sick man, went to heaven in the bosom of Abraham, as it's depicted in Luke. And the Scripture says the rich man lifted up his eyes, and he recognized this poor man. He recognized Lazarus. He was fully conscious. He was fully conscious of his experience in this life. He still had all the want-tos and the flesh and the desires. He looked up and saw Lazarus, but his perspective had not changed not one iota. What did he say? He said, Lord, command, command this man to come down and dip his finger in water and bring it and just touch it to my tongue. I'm in great torment. Even being in hell hadn't changed his perspective. He's calloused. He's oblivious to his real need. His real need is not water. 
His real need is to be in the presence of God, to be set free from sin. But that's over. It's too late. And he meets God's justice in his own power, his own intellect, his own understanding. It's a frightful place to be. He's not prepared for what he experienced. And neither were the people of Noah's day. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 36 through 39. But concerning that day and hour, that is the day of judgment, not even the angels in heaven or the, or the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of man, the son of man. They laughed. They mocked the idea that judgment was coming. What are you building, Noah? Building an ark. An ark looks like a boat. Well, it is a boat. That's a big boat, Noah. What are you going to do with such a big boat? It's for salvation against a, a big justice that's coming. Oh, come on, Noah. Oh, we're, you're 500 years old. Have you ever seen a flood? No. What makes you think one's coming now? God said it was. Oh, sorry, Noah. Can't buy it. Can't buy it. If someone just came back from a flood, if someone just came and told me they'd come in from a flood, maybe dripping with water, maybe showed me a picture, you know, maybe a t-shirt. I was at the first great flood and got this t-shirt. Maybe I would believe. Hmm. You remember that? Rich man cried out to the Lord when he realized he wasn't going to get any relief for himself. He said, well, I've got five brothers. Some, send someone to tell them about this, warn them about this place so they don't make the same mistake I did. And how did the Lord respond to them? He said, no, won't matter. Even if a man rises from the dead, they won't believe him either. Even if someone came back from that flood, they'd say, well, it can't happen again, can it? It never happened again. Jesus said, no, what you're going to hear is depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I wonder what it was like that day when the rain began to fall. My imagination runs away with it. Fear strikes my heart. As I think about the scripture says that God sealed the door. He shut the door and sealed it. And the rain began to fall. Did it all start falling at once? Or did, was it just a few drops here and there? And people were going, what is that? And then the torrent began. And then the water began to come up from the earth. And it began to rise. Everywhere they went, the water followed them. You see, you can't get away from the judgment of God. There's no place to hide from it. And they realized the only safe place was in that boat where Noah was. And did they begin to pound on the sides of the ark and begin to cry out and let us in? 
The highest mountains were swallowed up under the judgment of God that day, those days. Scripture says more than 20 feet covered the highest peak. Can you imagine how much water it would take to cover the earth? Isn't it Mount Everest is the highest peak, 29,000 feet up there. I mean, that's, a, that's a way up there. And 20 feet above that was where the water crested. That's a lot of water. It's a gruesome picture. And yet, it's in store for all who reject Christ. The only way to successfully meet God's judgment is in Christ, in the ark. Noah and his family and all the living creatures entered the ark. The vessel was designed by God for this particular purpose. To bring his people through the waters of judgment. You see, God had to be true to his justice, his just nature. Justice had to come. But he's going to be true to his grace and his mercy and provide a way. I love that Noah sealed it inside and out with pitch. This word, this, this word where we translate it pitch actually has an atonement connotation. It's associated with atonement. The idea of atonement. There are obvious shadows of Christ present here. Noah's a type of Christ. He is the second Adam. Flawed nature, but he points us toward Christ. Christ is the last Adam, the perfect Adam, the true Savior who will come. The ark is a shadow of Christ. God didn't instruct Noah and his family to sit on top of the ark. He didn't instruct Noah and his family to swim alongside the ark and help it or to cling to the sides of it until they couldn't cling anymore. They didn't steer it. There was no mechanism for steering it. They were told to go into the ark. They went in the ark and God sealed the door. And when the floodwaters came and began to rise, what did the ark do? The ark rose on top of the flood, on top of the judgment. And they rested on the inside. It wasn't up to them to save themselves. They rested in the ark. Just as we rest in Christ, it's the ark that saved them, preserved them, delivered them. There are only two ways you can meet God's justice. You can do it in your own strength of which the wrath of God will crush you for all of eternity. Or you can rest in Christ who has already exhausted God's justice at Calvary. Beyond God's justice, beginning in chapter 8, we see beyond God's judgment. There are three things about it that we should know. First of all, we see a new beginning. It was similar to the first beginning. The land appeared out of the waters. There's wind moving over the waters that reminds us of the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 2, moving over the chaos there. We see human life, animal life, again inhabit the earth. But it was different from the first beginning. There's no Eden, there's no paradise, there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's no evil or tree of life, there are no do-overs. 
God's beginning again, but He's beginning again under a covenant, a specific covenant whereby He's going to restrain evil while He carries out His work of redemption. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great and that every intention of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man's still fallen. He still has a wicked heart. He still has a fallen nature. The flood and the justice of God did not fix man's problem. It's important to note that God remembered Noah and all the life in the ark. I love this. When you think about, if I say I remembered something, what do you automatically think about? You think about what did you remember, right? You're thinking about a a fact, you know, uh, reminiscing about something. Uh, The other day, Karen led our um, monster in residence, our dog, Asa. Some of you know Asa. Let him out the back door, unsupervised, unleashed. Asa knows he has it good where he lives. So he's not interested in going anywhere else. He's usually pretty short. He goes out, does whatever he needs to do, and he comes back. He's ready to come back inside. He's, he's a, uh, uh, a dog that is up with the modern times, right? He's heard all the stories about living out in the elements, and he doesn't like it. But Karen let him out, and she got distracted and busy with what she was doing, and she forgot about Asa. Asa's patient sometimes. But she said she was busy doing what she was doing, and all of a sudden, she remembered Asa. Now, not just thinking about him fondly. She doesn't have any fond recollections of Asa. (laughs) They have a love-hate relationship. But she remembered what? She remembered that he's outside. So she went to the door. She acted out of her memory. And there he was at the door looking in like, has everyone left me? And she opened the door and let him in. You see, her remembrance drove her to action. And this is what happens when God remembers is that it moves him toward an object of what he's remembering. It's active. It's not just sitting back and fondly recollecting something that happened in the past. It's remembering in the way that it moves him towards something. So he remembered Noah and he fulfilled his faithful promise to end the flood and to save Noah. We also see that it's, we see a pleasing worship that takes place. This is the primary point in concluding this narrative. Noah built an altar, offered burnt offerings, and God was pleased. A whole burnt offering represented a total surrender to the Lord. And the Lord smelling this fragrance represented, indicated that he was pleased by it, that he accepted it. Now, God's showing us here that his people are to be a worshiping people. I think this is the first sign, the first picture we have of this worship taking place. They are to offer praise to him and the best of their possessions. Noah, think about this. He had seen firsthand 
the fierce judgment of God, the fierce wrath of God against sin, and how he had seen firsthand the incredible grace of God in the midst of that justice. He was the evidence of it. He was there. He saw and heard and and observed all that there was going on with 40 days of the wrath of God being poured out upon creation to wipe every living thing off the face of the earth. And he knew better than anyone what it meant to escape that judgment, to know his grace. Alan Ross says the expository idea of this entire narrative is that God will judge the wicked with severe catastrophic judgment to start life over with a worshiping community. The lesson is a warning of eminent judgment on the corrupt race that at any given moment throughout history, the eminence of God's judgment is always hanging there. It's it's like that huge, billowing, heavy, dark cloud that's ready to pour out. But God will do what's necessary to guard his holiness and restore creation. His justice is an integral part of that undertaking. The flood proves this. Noah and his family must have had some skepticism, right? If you've just watched God, you've, you're just, just a few years removed from the life of Adam. I mean, Adam lived 900 years. So Noah was born, what, maybe a few years after Noah or um, who? Adam. Adam died. I mean, he's pretty close. So, I mean, he's got like uh, second person accounts of Adam's life. He's heard the stories of, of creation and how God spoke everything into being. How God spoke all those stars that he would see at night and all of the mountains and all of this beautiful creation. God spoke it into being. And then he saw God wipe it clean with just a spoken word. You must be thinking at this point, if you're Noah, well, if God is this powerful and he is, this appears to be intolerant, that he could get so unhappy with his creation that he could just flick it into nothingness. But see, God, God is giving them reason not to think that. When he gives this covenant, he's assuring them, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You need to know that I can do that, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to labor with you. I'm going to forbear with you over time as I work redemptive processes. I'm going to bring others into this ark. I promise you, I won't do this again. And then we see him affirming his covenant-making covenant-keeping character. I never again curse the ground because of man. God's judgment is not whimsical, it's not fickle, and it's not cheap. It's fierce, it's powerful, it's complete, and it's righteous, but it's not cheap. Isaiah 66 says, for behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. 
For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Hebrews Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. He's not going to judge the earth by water again, by flood, but he is going to judge by fire. But he says it's going to be at the end. It'll be the final judgment. The final judgment. I want to give you just three or four things about this Noah, Noah covenant that you need to think about. And I don't have time to unpack them today. But the Noah covenant here that he offers is universal. It's universal in scope. He established it with Noah and his family and all future generations with all creation. The Noah covenant is preservative in purpose. He promises to sustain this fallen world, but nothing more. Instead of destroying the earth again with a flood, he maintains the cycles of nature, enforces boundaries between the animal and human realms, and noticeably absent are any promises of forgiveness, a coming Messiah, or a new creation. This is pointing more toward common grace that God establishes so that his gospel may go forth. And proclaim the hope that he offers in Christ. This covenant is modest in its expectation for human beings. It requires being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth. We heard that in Genesis, first chapter. Eating plants and animals with certain restraints and punishing the violent. These are important. But the covenant doesn't command things that seem even more important, such as worship. It doesn't command that. The purpose is preservative. The covenant's ethic focuses on basic activities necessary for the survival of human society. Procreation, material provision, and enforcing justice. And then God put the covenant into effect for a limited period of time. This covenant will conclude when? When Christ comes and fulfills the covenant of redemption. Essentially, all creation creatures will be under a common grace during this time. It's an interlude of sorts. Remember how evil was escalating out of control. It's like God put governors on sin. God put restraint on sin. God put a thermostat on it to control it that the gospel might go forth. We see the evil. The evil continues to abound. But it's not winning the day as such. God is working his purposes continually among us. All creation under a common grace that the gospel may go forth. During this season, the elect will be saved until Yahweh closes the door, shuts the door. And then Christ will appear. The unredeemed from all the ages are going to join him. The unregenerate will be judged by fire for eternity. Many procrastinate and believe they know better than God. Many are just like Joseph. Maybe someone here today, maybe you are just like Joseph that I described earlier. But more likely, you all know a Joseph. Joseph. 
You know someone. He's a family member. He's someone you work with. He's a neighbor on your street. How do we, how do we deal with Joseph's? I wish I had more time with Joseph down in New Orleans rather than a five-minute cab ride. My wife, even today, she's praying for Joseph. She's been praying for him every day. That's where we began. We began by praying for them. I can't get over that Jesus said that when this flood came, that all those people were yucking it up and laughing and having a good time, marrying and giving in marriage, and they had no anticipation that the flood was coming. I bought a book a few years ago about the Grand Canyon, and it talks about one of the, one of the um, most difficult things to happen out there that, that is, takes away human life are flash floods. That in that canyon, off the canyon, there are tributaries running back uh, in different ways, little canyons running off the main canyon, and that there can be a flash flood back at the head of some little stream rolling into the Colorado River there. And if you're down in the main canyon, you may not even know there's been a rainstorm. And that that flood can just come, it can come out of nowhere. You can be standing there and it just comes around the corner, the bend in that canyon, and just overwhelms you. And that people die that way. They have no, no expectation, not suspecting that the flood is coming, that the judgment's coming. But that doesn't stop it. That doesn't stop it. And at that point, you can't get out of its way. There are people all around us today that have no idea what's coming. Sometimes I wonder if we do, if we really understand what's coming, what's headed our way. The fact that evil continues to abound is the evidence that judgment's coming. God's not going, he's not going to tolerate it forever. He's going to bring it to a close. We should be praying. We should be sharing. We should be living as for Christ each and every day that others might be drawn to him. Believe the gospel while the opportunity is before you. Proclaim the gospel while the opportunity is before you. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are You're a great and mighty God. Lord, we live in a world that uh, sin continues to prevail each and every day, and it feels, as Nathan said earlier, like it's out of control and that we have nothing uh, to be able to, we have no hope in many ways, but we know here in this room today, we know as we gather around your word, you've given us hope, you've given us a promise and that we can rest in that. And Lord, I pray that you might give us the urgency and the conviction to share that hope with the world around us, other people who have no clue, no idea what's coming. Make us faithful. Make us a faithful people. Make us a faithful church, Lord, for your glory, for your honor. Lord, for your namesake, for all of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.